The Latter-day Lives podcast is not owned or operated by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any opinions expressed or implied in this recording are solely those of the host and guests and not of any specific organization, unless otherwise stated. Hello, friends. Welcome to episode 190 of the Latter-day Lives podcast. I'm your host, Sean Rapier, and it is so good to be back with you after a Thanksgiving weekend. Uh, For all of our listeners here in the U.S., I hope you had a terrific Thanksgiving. And now all of us, here we are in the Christmas season, and what a wonderful time to be alive. Uh, Before we get into this week's amazing episode, I do want to thank three new reviewers. Uh, Dre wants to be a doctor and what a great name that is and craze for paper. These are their Apple podcast, uh, listener names. And both of them mentioned, uh, Del Parson and the Del Parson interview we did. And I love Del. I totally agree with you. He is an amazing man. And then we also got a five-star review from Coyote Liberty. Uh, he and his wife are converts to the church and have recently moved to Utah and listen on their commute. Thank you so much for reaching out, all three of you on Apple Podcasts and giving us these reviews. They really help us to be found when people are searching for content. And my goodness, this show continues to just grow and grow. It's amazing. Thank you so much for your help. I also wanted to share with you some thoughts from one of our listeners in an email I got. And We get quite a few messages between social media and email and whatnot, but I wanted to bring this one up. Uh, This was a message from James Webb, and James and his wife listen from Scotland. And I love Scotland, by the way. What a beautiful, beautiful place. And James mentioned something that I agree, and I'd like to take the, the time to kind of mention right now, and that is that many of our guests are from Utah. And a big part of that is that I live in Utah. Our producer, Gene, lives in Utah. Our social media manager, Skyler, lives in Utah. And it's our primary sphere of influence. Even though we've all traveled all over the world, we just know so many people here. And James pointed out, and I wholeheartedly agreed, how wonderful it would be to have more stories from outside of Utah as well as outside of the United States. We are a global church. So I am putting out again the request for our listeners. We've had so many great guests because of you, our listeners, that you have suggested. If you know somebody, and they could be, if it's someone amazing in Utah, that's great too. But especially uh, guests that we could get from outside of Utah, uh, if you know someone who would be amazing, if you would please drop an email to guest at latterdaylives.com, that's G-U-E-S-T at latterdaylives.com. We would really appreciate it. And James, thank you for listening all the way from Scotland. Thank you to your wife, and and we just really appreciate it. Okay, on to uh, this week's guest, David Moore. I just cannot tell you how much I enjoyed having David Moore in our home. And we sat down. He is one of just the most brilliant men, but he was so fun to talk to as well, and just such a nice guy. I really respect him, and when you hear his story, my goodness, the things he has done in his life. He has worked for the government. Um, He was the acting deputy administrator and general counsel for the U.S. Agency for International Development, worked with the U.N. He's just done some really cool high-profile things, and he is just an amazing guy. You will love his story. And coming up this week in my Latter-day Life, 
We finally got the band back together. It's all coming up. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's conversation. And today here on the Latter-day Lives podcast, and actually here in the Latter-day Lives studios, it's so great to have a guest here in person. And my guest today is a professor specializing in international law, human rights, foreign relations law, and international development. He clerked on the Supreme Court under Justice Alito. Uh, He was a member of the United Nations Human Rights Committee. He works to promote international religious freedom, and he served as general counsel and acting uh, deputy administrator for the U.S. Agency for International Development, also known as USAID. Dave Moore, welcome to the show. Thank you, Sean. It's great to be with you. And that's all the time we have for this episode is just your bio. <laughs> Dave, it's incredible. I I am so excited to talk to you and all the amazing things that you have accomplished. Oh, thank you. Uh, it's going to be wonderful. But first of all, we got to get to know you, the man, and kind of where where you come from. Tell us a little bit about uh, where you grew up and your early family life. Absolutely. So I was born in Calgary, Canada, actually. My Mm. dad worked for the church education system. And so that was back in the day when uh, employees of church education moved around quite a bit. So he was posted at the University of Calgary Institute, and I was born while we were living there. Um, I'm the third of nine children. Nine children? Yeah, Yeah. So, wow. And now about 50 grandchildren, I think. So, uh, <laughs> we're increasing. Um, we lived in a few places in California, Long Beach, Covina, Santa Maria, and then moved to Virginia. So, I went from fifth grade through my freshman year of high school in Virginia, and then we moved to Bountiful, Utah uh, when I was in high school. Wow. So, were all of these moves because of reassignment within the church education system? Yes. So uh, my dad worked for a time w- for a bank uh, mm. in that um, he, he finished his MPA and, and worked for a bank for a time, but then he returned to church education. And so church education was uh, driving most of, most of the moves. You know, moves can be challenging. And for some of my siblings, I think certain moves were particularly challenging I was fortunate that a lot of them really helped me in positive ways. I love the world, and I love to visit new places in the world. One of the great things that uh, I feel like I've been able to experience is visiting a number of countries. And I know there are people who visited lots and lots, but I've probably visited three dozen countries. And mm. one of the things I love to do is just... Um, meet new people, understand their culture, how they live, try their foods. Um, That's awesome. You know, just expand uh, my experience and, 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 and understanding. So when you look at, when people ask you where you're from... How do you answer that? Yeah, no, I, 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 um, we moved to Bountiful, Utah, when I was in high school, and my yeah. parents are still in Bountiful, so I, okay. Bountiful's home. Yeah, um, and, and I would say sort of the main two areas are Utah and the Washington D.C. area. I yeah. sort of feel like those are the two home bases. So you get done with high school. What came next? Yeah, so I um, started at BYU, went to to BYU for a year, and then went off on a mission to Paraguay, Mm. and um, 
as I said, there there are nine of us, and all of us have served Spanish speaking missions. <laughs> so all nine, have all served? nine. Well, all, well um, all so served my it. my two sisters didn't serve um, full mission full time missions, but my parents were mission presidents in Argentina, so oh. they lived with them. My oldest sister did a mini mission, and my youngest sister was there from maybe eight to eleven. That's you know, a so in itself, yeah, sure. exactly. So Where she learned Spanish there. They were in Buenos Aires West. Beautiful. Yeah. That is so neat. What an experience. And you all serve Spanish. Isn't that that crazy? Yeah. Yeah. It's really. (laughs) And uh, my mom's from Southern Arizona. So the whole Latin culture, we have Mexican food on Christmas Eve. And, you know, it's. I love it. Yeah. It's fun. That is fantastic. I want to hear a little bit about the transition from. I'm living in a house with eight siblings and my parents, and now I'm at BYU. Right. I mean, I got to think that that is a big culture shock. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, It it was in a way, and you wouldn't think so because I was from Bountiful. And, you know, uh, so at Bountiful Bountiful High School, you're around a lot of other members of the church. And so BYU was not so different in that sense. You know, a lot of people come from out of states and it's just – you know this bonanza of all of a sudden I'm, <laughs> I, I I have lots of friends who are LDS, um, uh, but it was a, a transition. I think it's just the uh, part of growing up and being yeah. away from a family, and I'm so close to my family, and uh, and like I said, that was sort of my foundation. So you know, becoming a little bit more independent took t- took a little time. And how was your experience in Paraguay? It was fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was. Um, you know, it's it's cliche to say, but wow, um, so many of the people in Latin America are just yeah. you know, big-hearted, wonderful, faithful, uh, generous people, and so mm. it was a it was a special experience, definitely, to make that connection with people. A lot of missionaries, especially, I think. Uh, who were under our program of going at 19, right? you kind of were able to put your feet under you a little bit and kind of think about what you may want to be when you get older or whatnot. Um, did you kind of have an idea at BYU as to what you might want to do in the future? You know what? I, I didn't. It, mm. um, I remember sitting in high school and you have to apply for colleges and indicate this is what I think I want to be or what I want to <laughs> study. And I'd put business administration or something and, and I'm not a corporate person. Um, uh, and when I got to BYU, um, I studied political science and mm. sort of with an emphasis in international relations and in an English minor. And um, as I considered next steps, there really wasn't a PhD program where I said, that's the one thing I want to do for the rest of my life. Um, so I went to law school because it left doors open in yeah. areas of interest. So you got home from your mission. Did you finish then your bachelor's at BYU? I did, yeah. Okay. Yeah. How was the social part of BYU when you got home from your mission? It was good. You know, um, it's interesting. I graduated twice from BYU single. So I went, uh, you know, graduated, got my undergrad degree, went to BYU law school, um, and uh, graduated single both times. I I wasn't married till I was 33. Uh, what year did you graduate? I graduated in 92 from undergrad and 96 from law school. So did you, once you graduated with your bachelor's, did you already know you were going to do law school? 
Um, I did at that point. Yeah, I'd applied to law school, and um, and so I knew I was law bound. Uh, I wasn't sure I wanted to practice law. I again, it, mm. there were there were areas of interest that law fit uh, for, but um, but I wasn't sure what I would do with it. And how was your experience in law school? It was great. Law school's a bit of a pressure cooker, you know. That's it's, what I've heard. It's uh, a lot of work, um, a lot to learn. Um, but it's also very exciting. You know, it, it was fun to be in law school, particularly those that first year and feel like, wow, I'm learning things that I will really be able to use as a professional and, and help people and I'll have a, an expertise. Um, so it, it was exciting, but it was, it was intense. You know, I, I, um, probably developed some pathologies, uh, in the <laughs> pressure cooker of, of law school, but, but it yeah. was great. So you graduate, big world ahead of you now. Yeah. Did you already have a, a, a path charted out? Um, no, I really didn't. I'd, I'd gone into law school, as I said, without a clear path, but I was interested in international things. I was interested in international relations, international development. Um, but I got into law school and thought, I, I had to learn how to do this. You know, I spent three years, I had to learn how to practice law. So I went to the Justice Department in Washington, D.C. Mm. Uh, as a trial attorney, and um, which is a great opportunity because they give you a lot of responsibility really quickly. You know, in lots of law jobs, if you start at a big firm, you may be doing more background work for yeah. more senior partners, whereas there you're given cases. And yes, you have supervisors who review your your materials, but you're the attorney who's who's handling the case. So I, I went back and, and spent four years as a trial attorney representing government agencies and officials um, who were sued. It was uh, civil defense work. Mm. Do you have a case that really stands out that was really memorable that you can talk about? Sure. Um, probably the most high-profile case I handled involved Waco. Oh. Uh, and, and lots of folks you know, don't, won't remember uh, the, the tragedy at Waco. David Koresh. Exactly, yeah. right, where the FBI and Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms came in and many people died uh, is the... Um, the structure they were living in and sort of holed up in when yeah. it went up in flames. And so the day-to-day -day of that case was honestly sort of a grind because it was a case about getting records um, mm. from the government on, on Waco. There was a spark that was lit uh, in that case, or, or in, in, in the case the FBI represented, that there were not a particular type of re uh, record, this video of um, what had happened. Uh, before a certain time. And then all of a sudden, the U.S. Marshals went into the FBI, um, seized uh, tapes that were from earlier than the FBI had represented. So there was a big congressional investigation. I had to turn records over to Congress, and there was a special counsel uh, appointed uh, who I had to interview with um, as they tried to get to the bottom of why this uh, information had not been released previously. Wow. So that was, a, that was a bit of a pressure cooker. That as well. <laughs> so fascinating to me. We've had um, various people who have worked in politics, mm. and I get the sense from talking to most of them that there are things that are depressing about, like when when you see how the sausage is made, right? That are that really disheartening, but then also almost inevitably they've said. I it, there are also things I saw that gave me so much hope right. that average citizens don't get. Did you have that sense as well? 
Yeah, there is that sense. I mean, I think one of the wonderful things about working for the Department of Justice is that consistent with that name, you are trying to do justice. Mm. And so it's not just about winning the case. And I guess I, I shouldn't suggest that law is always that, but there's 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 certainly that sure. pressure and incentive and desire and, and effort. Um, but at the Justice Department, there's leeway to say, we need to confess error and settle this or pay up or do whatever, you know, this is the right way to do things. Oh, that's um, cool. So, so that was that was nice to see. And you spent four years there. Yeah, I was there four years. How was your experience in the church uh, in the Washington area? Yeah, it was fantastic. So there was a, at the time a, a large singles ward that still exists, but I think that it has split, and there are more uh, of these singles wards, the the, the colonial ward. Mm. Um, so it was it was a large ward, probably five hundred plus uh, members of the ward. Wow, lots of turnover, of course. You know, young single adults coming out, uh, interning or. Or yeah. uh, you know, doing a an entry level job and then moving on. Um, so I got to know a lot of fantastic people and um, and you know served in the elders quorum and stuff. So there was a lot of work to do, a lot, so lot cool. of moving people. You know, every Saturday <laughs> someone was moving, at least one. Um, but also, you know, it's it's a group of singles, so there's a lot of opportunity and, and need to support each other and. Sure. Um, Exercise priesthood in 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 support of people and love that yeah. So you did that for four years, right? And then where'd you go next? So then I uh, went up to moved to New York to Manhattan and worked on the Third Circuit, the the Third Circuit Court of Appeals um, for for Judge Alito at the time. So I was a law clerk for him. Wow. Yeah, his chambers were in Newark, New Jersey. So I chose to live in New York and uh, commute out <laughs> to, to Newark as a single person living in Manhattan was a better place to stay connected to to other. Do you other I do love Manhattan. You know, I sort of have a, um, before I moved there, I think I thought this is a great place to, to visit, not such a great place to live. Um, but I loved the opportunity to live there for a year. It was, and I think knowing I was going to be there for a year, I could just dive in and, you know, had the privilege of seeing, I don't know, how many Broadway uh, plays or musicals, you know, you'd, I'd come back, arrive at Penn Station from, from Newark, and you'd say, well, should I just go up north and, you know, see if there are tickets for something tonight? And That is incredible. So, what an experience. And just, you know, wandering out in the neighborhoods, it's fun just to walk around oh. New York. Um, so you did that for a year. How many... Um, clerks did Justice Alito have? So four. Generally, uh, uh, both a circuit court judge and a Supreme Court justice would have four clerks. Yeah. Talk about Justice Alito, because I find him fascinating. Yeah. I- I'm a big fan of, of Justice Alito. Um, I consider him one of the mentors uh, in, in my life. Just, um, just through the experience I've I've had with him, it's not that we're in contact a lot, or that you know he's uh, directing um, decisions that I might make or something. But I just uh, appreciate him as a person and mm-hmm. uh, also as a jurist. He's brilliant. Um, but he's also humble. You know, I remember at the Third Circuit, 
emergency motions would come in or something and we as clerks would say hey can we help you come in at 5 p.m. or something say no I'll handle it you go home you know (laughs) what a neat experience Um, yeah there's no question I felt very privileged very blessed to to have that opportunity Mm. and and you know I, I did get to go back and clerk for him on the Supreme Court and that was one of those sort of pinch yourself sort of experiences. I mean, there's so many qualified lawyers who could do the work there. And so to be one of the ones who had that opportunity and to get to learn how the court operates and see it function and be in that beautiful building with history (laughs) and, you know, so many important decisions that are made there. It was a, it was definitely a special experience. Did you get to meet the other justices? Yes. Um, yeah. So, Mm. uh, the the tradition is that clerks from one justice will invite the other justices to lunch. Um, and so, mm. you know, the, the four of us Alito clerks would take Justice Scalia to lunch, for example. And so it's not that you have a lot of time one-on-one, but you have that opportunity to to see them in action, to talk to their clerks and get a sense for how they operate, and then to have experiences like that. So after clerking for Justice Alito, where did you go from there? So I, um, when I, after clerking for him on the Third Circuit, I went to the University of Chicago to do a fellowship, mm. and and that was designed to help me prepare for the the law teaching market. Mm. So you, you know, one of the things you um, need to do is have a. a a research agenda and and have published and you know have a scholarly project or 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 um goal sort of vision that you're going to pursue as an an academic. So that gave me a couple years to to spend some time writing um networking with learning from top top legal scholars um and starting my own scholarship uh in in preparation for going on the teaching market that is so fascinating see i didn't know that world existed yeah i didn't know what this path was yeah yeah so you spent a couple of years there that's right did you fall in love with the idea of teaching then um, you know, it's interesting. I I sort of wrestled with whether I wanted to go in academics. When I was with Judge Alito on the Third Circuit, I thought I, I had enjoyed some of the trial work, um, the writing, the strategy. There were parts of it that I didn't enjoy so much. There's a lot of conflict, you know, not only with your opposing counsel, but sometimes with your own client, with your supervisor, mm-hmm. with the judge. Uh, and sometimes, you know, you're focused on issues that are seem very small, but y- you can't agree on them. And I just, yeah. you know, that that was hard for, for me and my, my personality. So I thought, I'll go to appellate work, which focuses more on legal issues, um, or go the academic route. And, um, when I'd been at BYU Law School, I'd been involved in religious freedom work that was being done at the law school by Professor Cole Durham. And I had seen that as a professor, you obtain a standing where you you can make a difference. Mm. Uh, You know, sort of people will listen um, and, and you have opportunities where you can do good. And so I decided to go the academic route and um and that move to the University of Chicago was was, you know, to to move on that path, move forward on that path. So you got done with your training for lack of a better word. Right. Uh-huh. But, uh, yeah. With your yeah. training you got done. Where'd you go from there? So um 
I started teaching at the University of Kentucky Law School. Mm. I actually, um, my wife and I got married in that uh, fellowship period when I was at the University of Chicago. I was clerking for Judge Alito, living in Manhattan, went down for the inauguration. Uh, my wife had just moved out to do her student teaching uh, in in the D.C. schools. Mm. And um, we had a mutual friend, and so we both were at the inauguration, and we met that day. Um, uh, but I thought, you know, if, if I were living here, I would ask her out, but I'm not, you know. Um, but then it turned out that my mom met her, one of her really good friends, and wanted to line us up. And um, a lot of singles from the East Coast, particularly the D.C. area, go down to North Carolina over Memorial Day mm. and uh, to the Outer Banks. And um, so I went down to sort of meet this, my wife's friend, um, uh, but my wife and I hit it off uh, there uh, in North Carolina. And then um, we were both going to be in Utah the next week, just so happened. So I asked her out, and that was our first date in in in, uh, in Utah. And, and the first six times we were together, we were in six different states. <laughs> she was living in D.C., I was living in New York, I moved to Chicago, she moved to Arizona to teach seminary, and then she moved to Utah to teach seminary full-time. That um, is awesome. So, oh, that's so great. Yeah. Wild. All right. So you end up getting married. Did you get married in Utah? We did get married in Utah. Yeah. Okay. So she was here teaching seminary full time uh, at Riverton High School. And, Got it. Uh, they allowed me to come out f- from my fellowship at the University of Chicago and do my research out here for a time. So wonderful. Got married, and she finished her uh, the first semester of the the year, and then we moved back to Chicago. Back to Chicago, and then from there you left together. Right, to go to Kentucky. To go to so, Kentucky. Right, so I taught at the University of Kentucky Law School for, for four years. Um, and in that time, Judge Alito was appointed to the, the Supreme Court. So I, I left the University of Kentucky to go clerk for him um, and uh, clerk for him for a year. And uh, during that time, accepted a position on the faculty at, at BYU, um, but stayed a year to teach at George Washington University as a, mm. as a visiting professor. All of this brought you back full circle, back to BYU. Back to BYU, I know. When did you start having children? So um, we were married in 2002, September, and our uh, first son was born in September of 2003. Mm. So. so you kind of were on your dad's plan of having some kids in different parts. <laughs> that that, different that is true. That is true. <laughs> yeah, both my wife and I were older, so and we both uh, wanted to have a large family, so we had to we had to put on our running shoes and uh, What's the separation between the ages of your kids? So our youngest is 8 and our oldest is 18. That is tight. Yeah. <laughs> that is tight for seven kids. Yeah. Yeah, uh, it was wonderful. I mean, it was it was also one of the challenges we had. My wife was very sick through all her pregnancies. Mm. So, you know, pick line in the first one and going in for hydration wow. and threw up to the on the delivery table and then it would get better after she delivered. You <laughs> so can tell she's the kids, amazing. See what see what we went through for no, you. No, it's so true. <laughs> she she um sacrificed a lot. That's amazing. Um so now you're back. Are have you taught at all in any of the classrooms you studied in? Absolutely. 
Yeah. How's that? Yeah, that is fun. Uh, you know, it's um, I haven't thought a lot about that. It was interesting to come back and be on the faculty with professors who had been my professors. Oh, wow. That yes. was a little bit, you know, uh, <laughs> ha- having been at Kentucky beforehand and then George Washington, I'd been in the academic space already, you know, before coming back. So so that made it a little bit easier to have already known them, you know, as a fellow academic, but yeah. that, that was that was something. Suddenly your professors are your peers. Right, exactly. Amazing. You're calling them by their first name. Uh, how did you get involved with the uh, United Nations? You know, it really was a result of my, well, I mean, I think it was tied to my work at USAID. So from 2718, excuse me, 2017 to 2019, I took a leave from the law school and went back. We moved back to DC again to Vienna. And um, I worked for two years at the US Agency for International Development. Talk a little bit about the history of the agency and what what its mission is and then what you were doing there. Great. So the agency was formed, I think, in the 1960s under President Kennedy. Um, International development has been part of U.S. foreign policy since... um, what, probably the 1950s or so. Uh, and so USAID is the lead federal agency that does international development and humanitarian assistance. So international development is sort of the long-term effort. This is helping with a, a country's education system mm. or health system or um, you know, helping them establish a tax system so they can raise their own revenue to uh, advance their their development. And so it focuses on development and then humanitarian assistance, which is sort of the emergency assistance that is provided in the event of a natural disaster or these days a lot of man-made disasters. Um, yeah. So it, it's... Um, it's not particularly well known, but it's an agency of about ten thousand employees and an annual wow. budget of twenty five billion or so. Mm. Um, and I, I just loved it. <laughs> so, as I said, I, you know, going to law school, I had an interest in international development. I'd wanted to get into uh, in my research something that felt really meaningful to me. Um, I was looking to teach a class at the Law School in International Development and then was asked to be an associate dean, so I wasn't able to do that. But then this opportunity came up at USAID. And I just loved the mission and loved the people. It's an agency that draws people with a lot of expertise, but who are committed to helping other people. And so they're willing Mm. to dedicate their lives and careers to um, helping people in, in who, who live in, you know, much more challenging circumstances than, than we do. Was your position an appointment? It was. Yeah. So it was a political appointment. Um, and I went back to be the general counsel. So the, the lead, um, attorney for the agency, the agency has a little over a hundred attorneys, about half of them in Washington, DC, and the other half posted in missions around the, the globe. Um, and so, it, again, I loved the mission, loved the people. It was a fantastic opportunity to learn. You know, those that, that first while, I just read and read and meet with people and learn from them. And, you know, about three o'clock every day, my brain hurt. And I thought, <laughs> you know, it's been a while since my brain has hurt like this. So it was, it was really exciting to learn so much. Um, and then I had this opportunity to be the acting deputy administrator, which allowed me to, to to see the full agency because this is sort of the the number two position in the agency, and so it wasn't limited to the legal issues. It was, um, 
you know, the policy side of things as well, and um, dealing with crises that came up, going to, to, to meetings at the White House in the Situation Room with the National Security Council, you know, going to the G7 uh, to do diplomatic work. It was just, it was, for, for an international law nerd, you know, it was, it was really fantastic. I feel like we could do, we should do like a 10-part series, <laughs> like an hour on the G7 alone, what it's like going to the G7. The Situation Room, I yeah. mean... You got to be kidding! Like, no, it we was were in the situation yeah. room. Yeah, so actually, there are, I think, three situation rooms. Right, they're mm. together. Um, but the the National Security Council, which sits within the White House, but brings together uh, representatives from different ed- executive agencies to coordinate on national security issues. Um, uh, you know, would hold meetings, and and so I would sit with sort of the deputy. Uh, secretaries, uh, that level of meeting uh, as you deal with problems arising in in different parts of the world. Do you remember, like, was there a key crisis that came up during your time? There were a number of uh, challenges that that came up. Um, for example, the the situation in Venezuela, mm, you know, yeah. which has has led to I, I, I am not um, current on how many, but you know, it's in the range of seven million or so leaving Venezuela. Yeah. So it's the largest migration in Latin mm. American history. Um, so, so there were things like Venezuela, the Rohingya crisis um, in in Myanmar and Bangladesh. Yeah. I was able to go visit Cox's Bazaar, where a lot of the Rohingya refugee, refugees um, relocated, and you just see plastic and bamboo structures as far as the eye can see. Because it made me question, what, can can I rely on this? You know, even to know factual mm. information. Did it feel? personal like hey they're attacking my friend yeah there was definitely some of that that was that was frustrating because not only the media but the senators no that's absolutely i mean they can a lot of times it's i'm gonna swoop in get my sound bite absolutely forward it to my donors right and get out of town right weekend yeah um that reminds me of the confirmation hearings when you mentioned soundbite um uh, our current president president biden was then senator biden and was on the judiciary committee and so mm-hmm. he was questioning the the judge and um and and, and uh there was more of a soundbite was more of a sound meal i think he had 30 minutes and he spoke for about 20 some of it um and then asked a question and the new york times read a uh, ran a headline the next day that said something like enough about you judge let's hear what i have to say right and and it just ranked the senators on how much of their questioning time they spent sort of giving a speech with biden being the uh the the lead uh, one but others also you know using that time to speak to their constituencies yeah. maybe and, and not so much finding out about about the judge um and then let's talk a little bit about your work with the un yeah so yeah i mentioned that i think um my time at USAID probably had something to do with that. So I, I returned to the law school in, in 2019 and um, 
received a call from someone at the State Department. It actually happened to be someone who had been a a trial attorney with me at the Justice Department uh, when I was there out of law school, who was now in the legal office at the State Department, asking if I was interested in in being a candidate for a a particular position. that uh, of an international body, the Venice Commission, um, that didn't work out. Uh, but then I received another um, inquiry about would I be interested in, in being a candidate for the the UN Human Rights Committee? Um, and I said, sure. You know, um, the I was then selected uh, by the State Department as the U.S. candidate to serve on the Human Rights Committee and went through this campaigning process where the State Department was. Um, you know, had a little brochure and, and they had their, their elections officers, which were promoting me and um, to other countries. Uh, this is, again, where the international law nerd uh, sort of comes out. You know, there was a cable that went out to to embassies across the, the world, um, informing them of my candidacy, asking them to meet with their host government and promote the candidacy. And then I met with uh, representatives of other countries um, through that through that process. It was um, during COVID, so it was it was online. Um uh, and then I was elected not to a full term. Uh, the full term is four years. Uh, I was elected to a term that was expiring, so I had a very short time serving on the committee. Um, but it, but it was also uh, an incredible learning experience, and and um, also something that was really meaningful in lots of ways. So the Human Rights Committee is a body of eighteen independent experts. So you don't serve as a representative of your country. You're nominated by your country and your country promotes you. But when you're elected, you serve in an independent capacity. Um, And this particular committee oversees states' compliance with a treaty called the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. Mm. So this is the human rights treaty that guarantees religious freedom, freedom of speech, rights of criminal defendants, those sorts of things. And... um, the, the committee does essentially three main things. States uh, who are parties to the treaty have to submit reports on their human rights practices under the treaty. Mm. And so the, the committee will review those and engage in dialogue with the state and make recommendations on how they should improve their human rights practices. Um, because we were in COVID, we didn't have any of those while I was on the committee where we were actually meeting with state representatives, we're sort of teeing some of that up. Um, the other uh, another function is what are called general comments, where they interpret provisions of the treaty and sort of explain what you need to do as a country to comply with freedom of religion or freedom of association or something like that. And then the third function is to hear individual complaints of human rights violations. And so that's largely what I did um, during the time that I was on on the committee. And that was a really one heavy experience because you are reading about the human rights violations that people Mm. across the world have suffered. This can be torture. This can be enforced disappearance where a family member has just been picked up and no one knows 20 years later, whether they're alive or not. Um, It can be violations of religious freedom, you know, people being arrested because they were holding a religious meeting in their home or because they were sharing their religious beliefs. 
away from their registered location of their church. That's the only place you could share your religious beliefs with wow. others, you know. So it was heavy in a sense to to see, uh, to read about these human rights violations. Um, but it was also really rewarding to know there was an entity who that, that was there that could say, Belarus or whatever, you know, you have violated um, wow. the human rights of, of this individual. And, you know, compliance is not really great with committee decisions and things like that, but at least there's a, a body saying, yeah. you know, you signed on to this obligation. Yeah, there's some accountability there. Yeah. And for the victim, you know, someone saying, yes, your human rights were violated. Yeah. Oh, that is incredible. I, I want to want to kind of wrap things up with, with this part of your life. Um, Talking about religious freedom, you know, we live in a country that has freedom of religion. You know, sometimes we start to feel like it's oppressive, and then we look at other cultures, like what the Uyghurs are going through right yes, now. Absolutely. You know, and we go, "Yeah, we're we're doing pretty well, <laughs> right? You know? Right?" And we're not we're not dealing with issues like that. But where do you see that we are as a country? Um, I guess a couple of other questions. What are you concerned about yeah. trend-wise that mm-hmm. you see? And then how concerned should we be and how involved should we get in the movement of religious freedom? I just asked you a whole bunch of questions. Yeah, so no, that's fantastic. Them. So prompt me if I, I forget some of them, but um, those are fantastic questions. You know, religious freedom is really a core human right um because it's it's the the freedom to choose what you think right what you're committed to what you believe in um how you understand the world uh and so it's it's such um as i said a core core human right core part of our existence and the statistics indicate that 80% and more of um the people of the world affiliate with a religion and and of the you know 20 15 to 20% who don't many still report religious beliefs or spiritual beliefs or mm, or those sorts right. of things so you know it's important across across the globe um and it remains a a human right that is frequently violated you, you again i think the statistics um you see about that same percentage of the world living under high or very high restrictions on their religious freedom. And part of that is because of the, the you know, large population of a country like China or Russia yeah. or India, right, where um, there are serious restrictions um, at differing levels uh, on, on religious freedom. So it's a right that is... Um, is is precarious throughout yeah. throughout the world and you're right we live in a place where we don't have to worry about going to church um or as i said sharing talking about religion in our home or sharing our religious beliefs um with a friend uh, or something like that uh but but that's not the case in in so many parts of the world and it's really um the trends are are, are troubling um, it's 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 getting worse in in lots of ways, um, in part because lots of the countries that were bastions of religious freedom are are, are backsliding. You know, so Western Europe, for example, religious yeah, freedom I was is say France is yeah, kind is, of a... is not a favored right. Yeah, you know, um, uh, 
in the United States, I think we're seeing the same thing. I think one of the things that concerns me the most is this view that religion is an excuse for bigotry. It's an excuse mm. for discrimination. And um, you get um, the U.S. Civil Rights Commission saying things like, religion is is just a cover, you know, for discrimination. And uh, a lot of it's the tension between sexual rights or the rights of sexual minorities and religious freedom and this sense that um, one or the other needs to prevail as opposed to thinking about how can we maximize rights and preserve rights. Um, and um, and so there, there are some real troubling trends in international religious freedom. So I do think it's something that um, we need to be concerned about. Um, I work with the International Center for Law and Religion Studies at mm. the law school at BYU, which is, um, I think it's fair to say, the the leading academic um uh, institution working on religious freedom in the world. Uh, and, and so that's another, one of the things I feel really grateful for that I have this meaningful opportunity to try and make things better for people on the ground to allow, you know, the gathering of Israel, the restoration <laughs> to, to continue it happening. It depends on religious it freedom. It does, you know. And it seems that there are, so, uh, and some of our listeners may not know, but the church has gotten very involved in it been really encouraging to um, to work in in, in in concert with the Catholic Church or the Seventh Day yeah. Adventist Church or the Baptist Church. We're all you know. in this fight with us. Absolutely, you know, and you realize, as as I think the leaders of the church emphasize that. There's we have more in common mm. um, than than what separates us, yeah. and that we really are critical to each other's success. Absolutely. Well, I I find it all fascinating, um, and I think troubling is a good word. Yeah, not panicking, right? But troubling, right? Um, if our listeners want to get involved and either understand more, or maybe you know do something, right? Uh, what where's somewhere they can start this seems like nebulous it seems so <laughs> right. so much bigger than one individual yes how would one start to work toward contributing and understanding religious freedom yeah so one of the things i've been working on is to um create an online training opportunity mm. uh in in international religious freedom so at the, at the center we're trying to to um, put online a um, a set of modules on religious freedom, what it means, um, uh, what sort of issues arise, because it's it's not just sort of can I go to church, etc. It's can the church be registered in a country? Um, Interesting. Yeah. Uh, what sort of tax system uh, is 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 in place, and are there preferences for certain religions over over others? Can um, a religion choose its own ministers? There's a really troubling case right now before the Inter-American Court of Human Rights uh, that will affect whether involves whether the Catholic Church has a say in sort of who represents it in um, in teaching Catholic mm. doctrine in in public schools in in Chile, where 
uh, a teacher um, who was a nun, uh, I believe, um, entered an open lesbian relationship and was therefore not uh, sort of decertified, you know, as, as being able to teach Catholic Catholic doctrine. And um, she brought a case, uh, a discrimination case in the American Court of Human Rights. And there's, I think, a real prospect that the court will hold that this was a violation of her human rights, that she needs to um, be um, provided that opportunity to um, teach Catholic doctrine, uh, even if she's living in a way that's inconsistent with that doctrine. Uh, and so there are questions about the autonomy of churches to be able to choose their own leaders. Um, and uh, so so there's all sorts of issues. So uh, getting back to your question, um, uh, we, we're trying to create some materials uh, wow. on, on religious freedom. Um, we do have an, an annual event, the Religious Freedom Annual Review, that focuses more on religious freedom in, in the United States. It's in June. Um, and now with COVID, we're getting a lot better at making things virtual in addition to the, mm. the in-person part of it so people can get a sense of what's the status of things. As far as getting involved, I think a lot of it is um, is thinking about how we vote. You know, how do candidates feel about religion? Do they do they and religious freedom? Do they see uh, value in religion? Um, you know, do they see religion as contributing to society? So, thinking about how candidates approach this, and this can be at the school board level up to, you know, the president. Um, uh, I think it's talking to, to um, friends and neighbors. It's getting involved in the community so people see that religious actors and religious organizations are an important part of society. I think all these things communicate the value of religion and therefore the value of, of, of religious freedom. Mm. Dave, this has been so fascinating. I have loved hearing <laughs> it's been so your fun to visit story. with you. This has just been incredible. <laughs> we are going to wrap up with the question that we ask all of our guests, and that is, Dave, what does being a member of the church mean to you? Thanks for as asking that question. Um, you know, being a member of the church is really everything to me. That's really the core of my life. Since I was young, you know, I'm interested in lots of things. I've had lots of wonderful experience. Um, but the thing that brings me the most joy, um, the most comfort, the most confidence uh, that really grounds me is uh, being a member of the Restored Church, having the Restored Gospel in my life, understanding the covenant path and having the blessing of covenants that I can cling to, uh, to, to, to know that uh, both in this life, I, I have some assurances of, of assistance, not some assurances. I have assurances of, of help making it through this life um, and finding meaning in this life and uh, the hope of eternal life with my sweet wife and our, as we call them, our seven wonders, the seven wonders of our world. You know? <laughs> he is a husband, a father. He is a professor of law. And I'm not going to spend the next 20 minutes saying all the other things that he's accomplished, but he is a brilliant man. Dave Moore, thank you so much for sharing your Thanks so much, Sean. It's really been wonderful to be with you. Mm -hmm. 
and my special thanks to my guest, David Moore. You know, we only spent just over an hour together, but I feel like David and I are friends now. Like if I saw him somewhere, like he he feels like an old friend. And I get the feeling that everyone who meets David feels that way about him. He's so brilliant and yet just such a nice down-to-earth guy. I thoroughly enjoyed our time together. Thank you, David. Uh, This week in my Latter-day Life, one of the things I enjoy about Thanksgiving is time to be able to just visit with people and to see people and relax and uh, just make those connections you may not otherwise. And on Friday, I got a text from a dear friend of mine named Mike Cronin, and I was so thrilled. Mike lives down in Texas, and he dropped me a text saying that he was in town and wondering if he could come by and and say hi while his, his family was off doing other things. And I said, of course. And Mike came over, and it was so great to see him. I had not seen Mike in, I don't know, maybe eight or nine years. Um, but Mike and I got to know each other on the mission. We were serving together down in southern Chile, and we were never companions, but we were really good friends. And we were really kind of part of a trio. Um, one of his companions, uh, who also was one of my companions and is one of my closest friends, is uh, Zach Truman. And the three of us were together in a city down in southern Chile, and we were in the same zone. And so on P-Days, we would get together and we'd go on splits and we'd hang out. And one of the things we realized is Zach is a very talented singer, beautiful voice, just incredible singing voice, which as we've discussed, I do not have. And Mike Cronin is a great guitar player, loves playing guitar and is just very talented musically. I am a drummer. Uh, I say that with air quotes because I played in a band in high school. I own a drum set now. I can keep a basic beat and I do okay, but uh, when we were on our mission, we started talking about how fun it would be to form a band. And we, we'd walk around and we'd get lunch or whatever on P-Day and we'd talk about what would this band be like and what kind of music would we play and should we get a bassist or should we just be a three-piece and have Zach play bass or what would we do? And it was so fun talking about this idea of the band. And then it struck us. We said, what, what's the band going to be called? And we realized our last names were Cronin, Truman, Rapier, CTR. <laughs> and when we realized we could call the band CTR, it was just thrilling to us. And then one P-Day we got together, and I don't know who had heard. I think it was probably Cronin. But one of us had heard that there was a family um, in our city that were members of the church that had a drum set and a guitar and that we could go play. And oh, we were so excited. CTR was actually going to play together. And so we started walking around. And as we got to this house where we thought it was, they said, no, we're a different family, but maybe you should go check out these guys. Maybe they know them. We spent the entire day walking around in the rain all over this city, and we kept bumping into people who would give us clues. Oh, I think it's actually this family. They're in this other branch or whatever. And we spent the day, and we were about to give up when we finally checked our last lead. And sure enough, there it was. And this family was thrilled to have us there. And we sat down, and we played Probably terribly, I don't know, but in my mind, it was the most epic thing. I sat down and played drums, and Cronin played guitar, and Truman sang, and I get the 
the the memory I don't remember exactly what we played. I don't think they were hymns, but I think that was okay. I think we may have played a little bit of rock and roll music, and we only played for you know a little while and and then we put everything down. But we continued over the years joking about CTR and the epic band that it could have been. And sure enough, Cronin comes over on Friday, and we're talking about CTR, and we're talking about our time together on the mission. And when you serve in the mission field, at least for me, there's a different bond. It's a different kinship I have with people. And I certainly have that with Cronin. And he was getting ready to leave, and I suddenly went, wait a minute. And I said, do you have five more minutes? And he said, sure. And we went down into the basement and I grabbed uh, an old guitar that was dusty that my daughter had left here, an electric guitar. It was missing one of its strings. And I dusted off my drum set and we sat down and we started playing a little bit together. But part of us was missing. And so I grabbed my phone and we called Zach Truman on FaceTime And he was so excited to see us. He was down in St. George, Utah with his family. But we put him up on a kind of a microphone stand thing so that he could see both of us. And we started playing the song Knocking on Heaven's Door. And even with the missing guitar string, Cronin sounded fantastic. And I kept the beat. And Zach started singing. And we could hear him through my my phone as as he was singing away. And 29 years later, CTR was back together playing a song. And I'm sure to anybody else, it sounded terrible. But to me, it was the sweetest music there ever could have been. We told Zach how much we love him and hung up with him. I gave Cronin a big hug, told him how much I love him, and he headed back out. But what a special time. Later that night, we were all texting each other, saying it was the highlight of our weekend. There are bonds that we make within the gospel, whether it's on a mission or whether it's serving with someone or ministering to them or whatever it is, the gospel creates bonds that are different. When we are brothers and sisters in Christ, when we are unified in our mission, it creates this bond. And that's not to say our bonds with people who are not members of our faith are any weaker. It's just different. There is this wonderful, beautiful power, and I have it with my brothers and sisters with whom I served on the mission, and I'm so grateful for it. It came right back, and I'm so thankful that we had that just fun few minutes this weekend to get back together and to remember that love we had for each other 29 years ago. We're all getting old now, all three of us, and we're already talking about someday we'll retire, and who knows? Maybe someday in an arena near you, you will see CTR on stage rocking the house, but it's likely you won't, and that's okay. And that's what's happening this week in my Latter-day life. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you know anyone who would enjoy the show, we would really appreciate if you'd share it. One last reminder, if you know anyone who'd make for a great guest, please email guest at latterdaylives.com. We would love to have them on the show. Uh, the Latter-day Lives podcast is produced by Gene Chittister. Social media by Skylar Fleming. I've been your host, Sean Rapier, and I think that's about all we got for you this week. So until we meet again, there is a great, big, beautiful world out there. Go be in it, just not of it. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.